Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Attention, attention, action this day. It is May the 29th, 2020, but we are looking back, as ever, at the events of 1940. That critical week, the most important week in human history. (laughs) (laughs) The history of the universe. (laughs) The history of the universe. Uh, The the evacuation of the BEF from Dunkirk. And, um, well, what a thrilling week it's been. And yesterday um, was May the 28th when the cabinet crisis was sealed with these words, James Holland. What was it Churchill yeah, said yeah. that, 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 he, that sort of... He, well, the, 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 killer, the killer paragraph, and I, I would defy anyone in that cabinet not to kind of be behind him at this point. He said, we shall go on. We shall fight it out. And if our Long Island story is to end, it were better it should not through surrender but only when we are rolling senseless on the ground. I mean, I'm, I'm all in. right, boss. All yeah. right. Yeah, forget it. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not surrendering. I'm driving to, but I'm driving to Durham and back um, <laughs> before we can do that, if that's all right by you. Just quickly before, um, oh, then, then testing my eyes. <laughs> right, okay. So so May the 29th, um, yesterday, yesterday the, the evacuation was starting to get moving. The cabinet crisis ends We've heard from my from my father Ingram about what happened to the um, the Bucks Battalion and my grandfather, my mother's yeah. father, um, 
who he says was because he was the adjutant, he was on a motorbike. Apparently, my grandfather going really instrumental in keeping the battalion cohesive. And all the old boys, when they went over in two thousand and did the tour there. All the old boys said that the, my grandfather had an easy smile, was always smiling, and that really, really helped. And you sort of think, God, oh, bloody hell. Anyway. What a guy. I mean, he was obviously yeah. absolutely amazing. And, and, and you yeah. know, I know I mentioned this the other day, but, I mean, you know, as a grandson, thinking of your grandfather dying in the Second World War, beetling around on a motorbike and going down with his Bren gun firing from the hip, that yeah. kind of doesn't get better That's, than that, yes. does it? Yes, it, well, yeah. It, I mean, I um, and I saw, I, I spoke to my mum about this the other day, and um, and she said, well, yes, you know, it's uh, uh, it, it's an extra, it is an extraordinary sol- story, and they weren't soldiers. That's the thing to remember. They were not yeah, soldiers. Yeah, they yeah. were, they were, they were, they were like you and I, James Holland. Anyway, so the events <laughs> <laughs> of May the, I can't ride a motorbike though. The events of May the 29th. So what what, what yeah? So this today? is an interesting day. So so you know. But, by now you're getting starting to get really big numbers of people um yeah. reaching reaching the coast um fierce battle is is beginning to happen so the um the 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 lease and the Isa river lines have been abandoned so they are kind of sort of 15 miles out of out of dunkirk and suddenly we're yeah. getting this is the day where the proper perimeter of the dunkirk defensive line yeah. around the kind of the the canal there's this canal that goes from sort of um, that goes goes from sort of Burgu all the way into Belgium. That's the yeah. kind of the line that they're behind. And actually, to be honest, it's a pretty good defensive position because yeah. beyond that, it's quite flooded. Um, it's quite flooded south of it as well. You know, obviously, it's a major obstacle. So the only way the Germans are going to breach it is really is by sustained mortar and artillery fire and by yeah. infantry assault. And those infantry have still yeah. got to get across the river and, of course, all the all the canal. And the canal is, I'm guessing from memory, probably kind of, you know, 20, 25 yards, something like that, 30 yeah. yards wide, yeah. something like that. And... Um, you know that that's an infantry assault, and that that's quite a difficult proposition for the Germans, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even though obviously they massively outnumber the defenders. Um, so this yeah. is this is a this is a a big day. And the other big thing that happens this day is that the um, French uh, um, Blanchard, who is the um, French First Army commander, he decides to pack it in. He, he says there's yeah. nothing we can do, and um, I'm going to yeah. let ourselves get surrounded and surrender. But the French yeah. Third Corps. Uh, which is part of First Army under uh, General uh, de la Laurency, he gives the orders of his corps to break off with the rest of the French forces and fall back. He says, yeah. I'm not going in the bag. You know, we're, yeah. we, we've still got a battle to fight. So the other thing that's really, really important here is that although uh, General Blanchard, who is the commander of the French First Army, decides that, you know, he's going to stick it out. There's nothing that can be done. They're going to get surrounded. It's all over. Um, not all his immediate subordinates agree. So um, the third corps commander, which is part of the French First Army under General de la Lancy, he decides yeah. to break and go go for it with the BEF back to Dunkirk. And actually, yeah. it is those guys that are defending Dunkirk, um, the actual Dunkirk bit of Dunkirk, if you see what I mean, rather yeah. than the kind of yeah. wider perimeter. Um, and and they're, they're absolutely instrumental in allowing the British to get away. You know, every single man that's fit to get away. So... Yeah. You know, we do we do owe them a big one. Of course, later on that night, Brigadier Nigel Somerset um, at Kassan Hosbrook gives the order to break out. Yeah, you know, it's it, it, it's a big day. I remember reading an interview with with, with Sid Nuttall, who's an interesting guy because he's he's yeah. one of those many people that are in service corps. He's a ROAC, he's a ROC guy, um, um, mechanic attached um, attached to the First Border Regiment. 
But when they start losing numbers, they go, hang on a minute, you know, you know you're no longer a mechanic, here's your rifle, yeah, yeah, um, you're yeah. now one of us. So he's effectively an infantryman rather than a mechanic, now part of the um, the 1st Border Regiment. And they actually get to um, Bray Dunes on the 29th of May. And he has to abandon his shirt, he's got so many lice in it. You know, it's classic kind of First World War stuff. They kind of abandon their vehicles at Burgoo, um, which yep. is that little town just a couple of miles sort of southeast of Dunkirk. Really nice town, actually. It's a great place to visit. Yeah. Um, and um, and when he gets to the beaches, it's just absolute chaos. I mean, it's absolute chaos. And yeah. one of the big problems is that everyone's really thirsty. They've run out of water. There's no water. And everyone's just raiding all the cellars at the, at the bars, old bars and sort of cafes and stuff on the front, uh, you know, on the seafront at Dunkirk and, and getting getting the booze out because that's the only fluid they can get hold of. And so there's loads of people that are drunk and all sorts. I mean, you know, he just says it was absolute mayhem. Yeah. You know, and every so often, you know, the Luftwaffe would scream over, Stukas would dive down, a bomb would fall, everyone would, you know, hit the deck. Huge pool, got, huge pool of oil, oily smoke kind of billowing out over Dunkirk you've, itself. You've got the RAF above the cloud cover. Um, uh, yeah. Because the RAF have, have now fully switched to flying patrols yes over over dunkirk and in interdicting the the, the luftwaffe at this point and the luftwaffe of course you you've had goering say leave it to me the luftwaffe yeah. will 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 deal with this there's no need to there's no need to press home an attack um if you don't want to yeah. which hitler takes him up on and of course he he's not capable you know he doesn't he doesn't know what the he, no, thing he doesn't, like know goering, he doesn't actually know what the luftwaffe is capable of no and it's not capable of this no, so he's he's got, in he's in Amsterdam looking at art. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes, he's lining up. He's, yes, he's picking picking the stuff to take home with him, isn't he? So yeah, I mean, the the, the 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 you've what you've got. There's an unseen battle. You've still got British ships um, uh, being sunk, haven't you? Though, like uh, grenade yep. grenade is, if I'm right, in thinking goes down today. The wakeful. When's the wakeful? That, that that's also uh, uh, sunk yep. at this point. Um, yeah, I mean, but it's also it's a, it's a scene of absolute chaos. But but but. The thing about the about the RAF is that Keith Park has won a little battle because um, there's this, they don't have enough planes to do constant standing patrols over Dunkirk. Yeah. Because, of course, the yeah. moment you leave Britain, you're leaving your air defence system as well. So they haven't got yes. ground controllers. They haven't got radar anymore. Yeah. And Park argues very strongly that it's better to have two squadrons operating at once for yeah. some of the time rather yeah. than have flights of... Six penny, operating penny packets, some of basically. the time, yeah, uh, all yeah. of the time rather, and yeah. he wins that particular battle, and it's unquestionably the right the right call. But of course, there are moments where there is just no RAF whatsoever, no one about, yeah, yeah. But you need those, you know, you need double squadron strength to be able to have an impact. So that's why it's another reason why the kind of you know the three Spitfires in, in the Dunkirk movie are kind of completely inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> they were going over as twenty four of them, um, yeah. So yeah, so but anyway, but but it's a, you know this day forty seven thousand three hundred and ten are lifted. You know that's a yeah. that's a lot. Sort of seventy eighty thousand already in total, aren't we? So we, 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 we yes 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 yes. We're we starting are to get. That. We're starting to. It's starting to get underway, 000. and it's exceeded expectations from the first day when Ramsey yep. is first given this job. He's thinking we'll probably get what thirty five thousand off, and we talked about this with Steve that that the, there's some political. There's some political, uh, you know, lowering expectation stuff in order yeah. to in order to pull off something better. Yeah. Um, but 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 
but nowhere near the total yet. So I mean, there's there's some hard yards yet to be uh, yet to be run. It's the truth. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's 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 very much in the balance still. But the yeah. good news is is the initial sort of prediction of being able to hold the perimeter for 24, 36 hours, that's already passed. Yeah. Uh, and clearly they're going to be a hold for another kind of, four, you know, 36 hours at the very minimum. And you've also got this thing it's that when the, I mean, when backs are to the wall, you get, like, you get, as you said earlier, very, very strong battalion and company commanders taking control of their men and yeah. putting in, putting in extremely stern action. Yeah. And being able to hold the Germans up, as we saw in Harzebrook yesterday, and you know that the, the people getting organised, the gun batteries firing over open sites, yeah. and all this sort of stuff, all that kind of can, stuff. Yeah, you can stop the pa- you can do it, and I expect p- part of what's happening is uh, uh, yes, they got their backs to the walls, and yes, there's a kind of a reason for doing this. It's not it's not a it's not a smart strategic plan like the, the plan D. This is like this is really really matters now. Yeah, and uh, and that that's obviously run down into the run down to battalion and company level in a way that perhaps it hadn't two weeks earlier you know when the whole thing starts and they're expecting to just bog the germans down and then and then they'll sit they'll sit on some on a belgian canal for four years until the german economy collapses which is what (laughs) which is what the plan uh, uh, the plan was only two weeks ago yeah that is the incredible thing isn't it just was so you know it's that is the strategic earthquake it's only two weeks ago yeah they were preparing for um well we'll you know we'll keep them out of northern france we'll sit here they hold them up in belgium on a canal and that and that and and the navy will blockade them and our heavy bombers will be ready in 1942 and you know like for god's sake yeah it's incredible isn't it yeah it is absolutely amazing but i suppose you know you get behind the canal line and you suddenly you know you can see you can hear the the guns you can you can hear the aircraft overhead you can see the huge pall of oily smoke over dunkirk itself you know the situation is absolutely desperate and you've got germans coming towards you and and there's a i suppose there's a sort of combination of Okay, I really get that this is really critical. I mean, you know, you couldn't yeah. be in any doubt about that. And yeah. there must also be a bit of kind of, right, you know, we're going to show you. Yeah. I think it's a sort yeah. of combination of that. So you do have this sort of scene after scene of, of, of just phenomenal bravery yeah. along the canals, uh, along that canal line of, of the Dunkirk perimeter. Yeah. But we'll talk about that a bit more in the next couple of days. Excellent. Okay. Um, and now... Uh, allons-y tout le monde nous allons parler avec quelqu'un français <laughs> and that la, thank god he speaks english <laughs> achtung achtung hello dear listeners i hope you've been enjoying the content james and i've been serving up this past year if you have enjoyed it and you felt so inclined, could we ask you to consider voting for us in this year's podcast awards? There's a special award that's got nothing to do with juries and industry professionals. It's called the Listener's Award. You need to go to British Podcast Awards slash vote. Then put in We Have Ways and up we pop. Prove you're not a robot. You know you can do it. And make sure to confirm your vote in the email they sent you. Many thanks from me and James and everyone at the We Have Ways team. We're delighted because let's be honest now, up till now on this podcast, 
Things have been a tiny bit um, uh, British-centric, let's put it that way. Just a little bit, um, just a little bit. Just a little bit, but we're delighted to say that for today's uh, edition, we are joined by, yes, get this, a Frenchman. How about this? Pierre Samuel Natanson, uh, who joins us from Normandy. Um, although, you, is it, you went to school in Dorset? Yeah. What is this? I went to Incredible. high school in, Dor- in Dorchester and well, then fantastic. went to university in London. Well, thank goodness for that, because otherwise um, you'd be dealing with our broken schoolboy French. So, um, <laughs> um, so uh, Pierre, the, the, uh, the events of this week in 1940 obviously loom hugely in the British imagination and in the British telling of the Second World War. Um, one of the things that I think sometimes gets overlooked from our perspective, certainly here in the UK, is the, is the French involvement, not only in the defence of Dunkirk, but in the evacuation itself. That the, the French soldiers were evacuated, but also French soldiers were part of the perimeter. Why do you think, why do you think the British have probably uh, forgotten all about that? Uh, I think it has a very different, the Battle of Dunkirk has a very different meaning for the Brits and for the French. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, um, for the French, it's almost the consecration of the defeat in 1940. I mean, there's obviously fighting after Dunkirk, but, um, it's just the, it's the most, uh, obvious example of the, of the military defeat of the, uh, and of the, uh, complete inability of the French army to contain the German army. Uh, yeah. so it's not, and it, it I, I think it's also part of a much larger view uh, that France has of its army in 1940. It's uh, not something we're proud of. Uh, and yeah. there's, a, there's very much of a 1940 syndrome uh, that runs through the Second World War and to this day. Uh, the, and Dunkirk is just part of that. And the other thing is that Dunkirk has been, well, let's put it like this. The Vichy regime has put a big spin on the uh, on the on on the Battle of Dunkirk, which it still works today. Okay, you know, you put Dunkirk and then a little bit of Marcel Kibier after that. Okay, and boom, you've got your uh, good old uh, Anglo-French rivalry going going again. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, to be honest, you you could you could step away from it, and and it does quite look like that. You know, <laughs> in lots of ways. It could. But I mean, obviously, we've talked. We've talked about Mezzacabir before, which is, from from a British point of view, a sound a sound decision. But, and and um, I think it was, and and even people like even De Gaulle actually uh, understood Mezzacabir, and you know he was notoriously difficult. But um, uh, <laughs> that's uh, and, and and I don't think it had to be like that. Like I, I don't go, to, I don't like to go too much into counterfactual. But um, if France doesn't surrender in um, uh, June of nineteen forty, and I don't think well. Is that possible or not? That's a, that's a debate. But um, then Dunkirk could very well have become kind of a symbol of the uh, friendship between France and the and the UK, and about you know yeah. French and British soldiers fighting side by side. To um, and I mean, from a tactical point of view, you know they're doing pretty well. Uh, they they they're delaying the you know they're delaying the Germans for a week. I mean, the Germans don't help themselves, but. Uh, uh, so yeah, it didn't have to be. I don't think it had to be that way, but that's certainly the way that. Yeah. And it, and it is true, isn't it, that that the French do fight pretty well in Dunkirk. Most of mostly, yeah. 
I mean, it's it's just like the rest of the campaign in 1940. There's some elements of uh, incredible bravery. It's uh, and there's units that just crumble and uh, and under incredibly difficult circumstances, especially towards the end of the uh, towards the end of the battle. Everybody's running out of food. There's no water. Uh, mm. It's 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 a pretty terrible situation. Um, it almost epitomizes the Battle of France. It's uh, some tactical successes overall, uh, very little, uh, very little, little overall plan and, and, and leadership. Although there's some good, ex- there's actually a few examples of uh, French uh, senior leaders doing very well. Uh, Admiral, Admiral Abrial commanding the sector, uh, George Janssen the, that uh, commands the uh, uh, 12th Mechanized Infantry Division that eventually dies actually in the, in the perimeter at uh, Fort de Dune. So, um, yeah. It's uh, and there's it's, uh, it Laurent more, C. He's sorry. pretty good, uh, and of course De Gaulle himself, and De Gaulle himself, and um, there's the counterattack at Ston, isn't there? And the, um, yeah. early on in the cam- campaign, you know, yeah, there's, yeah, there's yeah. lots of incidents. I mean, what do you find? You find is just the the problem is this lack of orders. It's such a sort of top heavy system of um, of organization within the French army. And because there's, you know, people are always waiting for orders and those orders don't come because of refugees, because of cut phone lines, because of dispatch riders not getting through and all the rest of it. You know, the whole, the, the French army just gets sort of stuck. But but when it is given the opportunity to fight, then very often it performs perfectly well. The, the tragedy of 1940 is it never had the opportunity to fight as it should do. Well, I, I totally agree with you on the on the top heavy part of the French leadership. I mean, the French army is fighting with an antiquated um, uh, senior leadership uh, that base, that basically wants to refight World War One, um, and you know that's why I tell to when 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 clients ask me. Um, uh, what uh, you know, the, the two phrases version of the Battle of France. Okay, the, the answer is the Germans are fighting World War Two. Well, the French are fighting World War One. That's the uh, <laughs> that's that's the short short answer. The and 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 there are a number of examples of tactical successes. There's also a uh, there's also plenty of examples of how the French don't they're not up to the task. I mean, look at how uh, I think it's third and fourth cuirasses, third and fourth armored division that show up. Pretty much right in time to stop Guderian across, not just after he crossed the Meuse, uh, and they just wait for a day because you know we want to reorganize and make sure that uh, that we have you know proper uh, that our lines are secure and uh, uh, we're not exactly sure what's in front of us, etc. They just don't have the. Um, I'm going to reuse your example, your 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 catchphrase, uh, James. But they don't have the tactical chutzpah that the uh, that the Germans have, yeah. and you find it times and times again. So in the right circumstance, and there's some incredible example. If we come back to Dunkirk, I mean, the defense of first the of first French army at Lille is absolutely essential for the for the for the whole battle, and they and they do and they do very very well. Uh, they do very and they tend to do very well when they have their backs against the wall. That's the that's the unfortunate uh, uh, reality. There it is in a nutshell, is that the, this uh, as you say when their backs against the wall, and and think the chips are really down. They think well okay well then we'll stand and fight. But up to that point, uh, that isn't happening. But that but that of course is a decision you make locally, isn't it? That's yeah. a battalion commander, or a bri- or a, bri- a brigade commander going <laughs> okay right well I'm um, no you know no word from above. 
uh, this is what we'll do. You also, I mean, it's interesting that you're saying. Well, they're unshackled they're fight- then, aren't they? They're unshackled. Well, exactly, by, but, by they're that fight- heavy but, yeah. but they're also fighting. But they're also fighting. Well, that's a defensive action. They can they can manage a defensive action. A world war, like you say, a first world war action. But if they've got a counter attack with with movement, they just they just haven't got it. And it's 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 basically the French army's nervous system doesn't work. Is what it is, isn't it? Whereas the mm. the the, the the German army has a ner- actually has a modern nervous system. I mean, to, to yeah, and nervous. what's yeah. that nervous system? It's communication. You know, yeah. we've, French the French army is relying far too much on runners. Uh, uh, radios are nowhere near in the numbers that are needed to uh, run this kind of uh, run this kind of war. Germans are yeah. just better at it. I mean, um, we you know, always, something that always strikes me is that Guderian in the First World War, he's not he's not in the cavalry like all of the famous uh, Prussian officers. Yeah. He's a, he's a, he's in communications. He knows what's uh, he understands what's what was the problem in the First World War. He overcomes it in the Second World War. That's the uh, yeah, and that's, that's the a really thing good the point, And that's the thing the French haven't haven't got. And it makes sense. I mean, you know, we and we, we've been talking about the French, but I mean, to some extent, that also applies to the British Army. Oh, it's true. Uh, the British, the, the, the British at battalion level, it's one radio for the brigade. Yeah. And that's all the radios that you have in an infantry battalion in in Dunkirk in in France in 1940. Yeah. And obviously by by Normandy, we you know, which we keep talking about, all these problems of yeah. these problems have all been eradicated. You know, every single tank has its own net has its internals you know the that they've, they've they've fixed that yeah and it's interesting i think one of the interesting things about the dunkirk about the france campaign is all the people who really figure out the lessons brooke montgomery end up being the people making the you know making the running yeah. for later in the war and yeah. figuring things out not just strategically but tactically you know you've, you've got to join these things up and you've got to train and and all that sort of stuff yeah, 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 and, yeah. and it's um, Alexander and the battle schools, and it's also Adam and yeah, the reorganisation yeah, of personnel. Yeah, I mean they're they're all yeah, exactly all exactly. in there at that in in the France campaign. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Well, well, and the, the the British have a the British run into this problem that their artillery you can't use artillery lines wires if you're on the move the entire time. Yeah, and yeah. so their artillery net their artillery net goes wrong as a result, and they have to the, the, they realise they don't have radios for it. I mean it's a you know, it's it is about it's all about communication. Yeah, and um, they also and they also their base maintenance for all their um, mechanisation yeah. is always back is back in southeast of England, and, yeah. and you know again they kind of realise that that just doesn't work. You know, you've <laughs> got to have it really close, and so from then yeah. on for the rest of the war, you know, their, their tanks are by the time that I mean I, I suppose it's kind of 1942 by the time they've got a serious number of tanks in in the field, but by then they've got kind of you know light aid detachments, you know forward um, maintenance bases and all the rest of it you know they've really got themselves organized yeah Pierre, how many how many French soldiers were evacuated at Dunkirk? Came back to the UK. Uh, so it's about you, you'll read different numbers, but it's about hundred twenty. Yes, different 000, numbers, aren't there? About one hundred twenty thousand, and that might or might not include the Belgium. Uh, right. Sometimes you you read one hundred twenty thousand plus fifteen thousand Belgium. Sometimes the Belgium are for some reason included in the French because let's face it, it's. It's the British evacuation, and then there's some other guys that leave. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then what? And then what happens to those soldiers? Do, some of them stay to be free French. Very they, few some of them... actually stay in the UK. The vast majority return to France, and which is understandable. I mean, France is still fighting, but actually. Yep. Well, the, the decision to return them to France is made very quickly after Dunkirk, but actually by the time it's done, France has already capitulated. So you actually have British ships 
bringing French soldiers to Vichy-controlled uh, uh, areas in the summer of 1940. There's most of them. There are very, there are, there is a small number of uh, French soldiers that will stay. So basically after the armistice, uh, after the Gauls arrived in London, these soldiers are given a choice. Uh, very, very, very there, there's reception areas, aren't there? There's reception areas. And I mean, one of them yeah. is Olympia in, in London, West London. Right. Um, is one of the big rece- reception areas for the, fr- for the French. Uh, and um, they set up this the, uh, free French headquarters and all the rest of it. But, but, they're then given this choice, aren't they? You know, do you want to stay yeah. and fight for free French, or do you want to go home and, and, and most people sort of go, yeah. do I want to go home and live in a in, in, live in a you know where there is no war, or do I want to carry on fighting? Mm, yeah. I'll go for the peace option. Thanks. And you know, this is this is one of these things where we have to be really really careful not to uh, not to well, you, we we have the benefit of hindsight uh, and we know what happens afterwards. Uh, I'm not sure as a French soldier at the time I would have agreed to stay. And you know, everybody is expecting the UK to fall within the few in the next few weeks. So uh, so so uh, the the interesting story there is that um, there's a few few soldiers that stay there's very very few organized units that stay um with uh one notable exception which is the 12th half brigade of the foreign legion uh doesn't yes. come back but they don't come back from dunkirk they, they're coming back from narvik that's right uh, uh because there's also a, uh, an evacuation of norway at that point and they're going to form the backbone uh, of what's going to become the first uh, free French brigade at Birakem. On the Pierre uh, Koenig. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the question, you know, we could go into a lot of uh, why is this unit staying? I don't. I, I think the fact that it's a foreign legion unit uh, explains a lot. But uh, maybe that's that's that's. Yes, because uh, one of the one of the main command, one of the main one of the most charismatic commanders is a is a is a white Russian, isn't he? I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but. Yeah, one of one of the battalion, not half battalion. One of the company commanders is a is a is a white Russian count who actually okay. does get killed, I think, at Birhakim um, okay. in uh, end of May, beginning of June, nineteen forty-two, um, during the breakout. But um, you know, he's this incredibly charismatic character, and of course, there are lots of foreign people fighting yeah. in the yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so. In, in in the half in, yeah in the half brigade yeah quite extraordinary. So 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 then those men return, and then and then like you say, Vichy France grabs this this story as a i mean and, and from their point of view that makes that makes perfect sense, sense doesn't yeah. it it's total sense yeah um but but then how does it get digested by by de gaulle and the and, and then the gaullist tradition in france that the, the story of dunkirk it's not really i mean to be honest dunkirk is really a non-event in france for either side uh, of the you know if you separate with if you separate France uh, you know from the uh, yeah. 60s onwards into between Gaullist and non-Gaullist uh, yeah. it's not really an event okay and there's a there's very much of a trauma that's that's associated with the whole of the defeat and Dunkirk uh, uh, Dunkirk within it it's you know post-war the focus uh, in front the kind of the legacy of the Second World War in France is it's De Gaulle in England, it's the Free French Forces in North Africa, it's the 2nd Free French Armoured Division in Normandy, and then, you know, 1st Army going into Germany, etc. Um, there's very much, there's almost a shame, really, that's, uh, that's associated. Remember, you know, end of the battle, the, the, the end of the battle of France, the Germans captured 1.8 million soldiers. 
which who are going to spend the war in Germany or in Eastern Europe. Okay, these guys come home and they really have nothing to show for their, uh, you know, they spend their war as as captives. Uh, it's not very glorious, and they were captured in the most humiliating defeat that uh, France uh, France uh, suffered in its history. So um, so it's not really something that's talked much about. Uh, in popular culture, um, there were there there was one very famous film that was made on Dunkirk uh, called um, in French it's called Weekend at Zutkot. In I think the English title is Weekend at Dunkirk uh, with uh, Jean-Pierre Belmondo, and it's really I mean if you haven't seen it it's 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 a really great movie, uh, but it is this it is the view of that the french have of the battle of the battle of france is this guy that's completely lost uh who just doesn't want to be part of it uh it's the futility of the whole of the whole affair uh, uh um and and that's kind of, that, that's kind of a running theme in the uh, in the popular view of the um, of the of the battle of france there's another very uh, there's another series of influential films called the La Septième Compagnie, the the Seventh Company. Okay, so it's uh, I, I I'm not sure they've ever been translated or or even dubbed, but it's a it's a trilogy, it's a comedy uh, about this small section of soldiers uh, in the middle of the battle and who are just making their utmost efforts to not be part of it. Uh, it's really funny. <laughs> uh, it's really, really funny, but it's uh, it's just a view that you know the the, the French army wasn't. That's that's the view uh, in public culture that the French army just didn't want to fight in 1940. Because you touched on that earlier, 1940 syndrome, you called it. Yeah, is that, is, is, is that the sort of what what people would call it? Yeah, yeah, yeah I guess. Um, yeah, there's been articles about it, and and it, it goes. I mean, it it's kind of. Um, uh, you can. You, it's the kind of concept that you they, you can you can make it tell you anything you want. Really, uh, some of it has. So the the 1940 syndrome has been uh, used to try to um, show a lack of uh, recognition for the Allied um, uh, participation in the liberation of France in 1944, uh, etc. And it, and it goes way beyond the war. And and if, you know if we stay in political sphere, it goes way beyond the war. I mean the the I think that, for example the, the 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 very strong will of the of leaders of the Fourth Republic and then de Gaulle to have an independent nuclear t- deterrent is directly linked to that uh, 1940 syndrome. Uh, make sure that this does not happen again and make sure that we do not have to rely on anyone to uh, to, <laughs> to make yes, sure to that it doesn't happen back. again. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it's fascinating. Absolutely really fascinating. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because there isn't, there isn't, um, there isn't a, a sort of popular tradition of, of, of narrative history about the Second World War in France either, is there? There's very no, few really. books by French historians on the subject. I mean, obviously, the stuff about no, the there are there are. Uh, well, I mean, in, in in academia, it's a it's it is a subject, uh, mostly on the political side, obviously, because the history yeah. of France political uh, and uh, economic. Yeah. There's lots of economic history. Yeah, as well yeah, yeah. France. There is some military. Uh, there, there's quite a lot of military uh, writing about 1940, mostly about you know 44 and onwards. Um, the but certainly, I mean. Generally speaking, military history is not as well recognised in academia in France as it is in the UK. 
Uh, that's not something. If you are a brilliant uh, uh, history student, your t your professors will not encourage you to do military history in France. That's just uh, that's just the way it is. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, saying that, uh, having said that, you know, I I went to the, you know to university in the UK, so <laughs> that's uh, that might be a, <laughs> that might be a good example. You but found, found your way around that, yeah. <laughs> sorry, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but yeah. So what would they be? What would they be encouraged to study at a French university then? Uh, actually, that's funny because I mean the. the you know, it's social and economic history that's the most yeah. uh, valued, and and the even though it's been criticised uh, lately, you know, it's the um, it's the, the school of thought of l'école des annales. Uh, yeah, des annales. Yeah, yeah. And the, now, the, the, to go back to nineteen forty, the really interesting thing about this is that one of the lead uh, yes. uh, one of the lead thinker behind l'école des annales is Marc Bloch, uh, probably yeah, Bloch. the most yeah, famous yeah. most famous. French historian of the 20th century, who was a economic historian of the Middle Ages, but uh, his most famous book is *The Strange Defeat*, uh, which he yeah. wrote. Uh, <laughs> which is, it's an analysis, but it's also his own experience as, a, as an officer in the, in the in the Battle of France, uh, yeah. and he wrote it immediately afterwards before he was actually killed. But um, yeah. Uh, by the Germans, uh, obviously, Mark Bloch was Jewish, but um, uh, so so yeah, there's there's a sort of link uh, there. But uh, yes, well, well, an extraordinary link, isn't it? Because because he's got to explain a, a, an event with you know because, because if our listeners know or not, the Annal School is the idea. It's a, essentially a sort of Marxist reading of history where you know that there's great for great great impersonal forces at work that individuals don't really can't really. Um, influence the course of events that we're we're, we're part of something uh that looking at the individuals is a waste of time and you need to look at the systems and the and the uh the, the way things are set up and how they all how things interact rather than people that, that, that i mean that that's a that's that's the orange squash explanation yeah if you're not no but it's exactly it's, it's yeah it's exactly that it's exactly that but then he's immediately faced with an event where actually you can pin things on tiny individual moments and where the, the way the the way people react to different situations, you know, ra rather than the sort of impersonal thing at work. So he has to he has to try. I, I mean, I read it a very very long time ago. It's a brilliant um, book, and it's still it's I a mean, brilliant it's still book. extremely relevant. Yeah. I mean, uh... angry and full of uh, and full of this is ha this happened yeah. happened to me, and yeah. what is and him having to say, well, what's happened to me is that's what's happened in general. You know, like having to take off his anal. It's a fascinating read yeah. for that. But and, it's also uh, it's also it's, it's kind of full of that that. Um, a, a this sort of helplessness of of being a sort of pawn in such bigger things, but also the kind of sort of um, despair at the at, at the higher command, both sort of political and military. But you see that, and, and I remember all the stuff I was reading when I was doing doing all this some years ago. You know, all the all the the eyewitness testimonies, they're all despairing of the high command. I mean, mm. all of them. You know, it was blatantly obvious that this was going to you know. That this was not the way to do things, and yet it still happened. That is basically the kind of sort of the message you get you get across. And it's really interesting. Uh, from my understanding, they're pro they're partially right. I mean, the biggest uh, the, 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 if there's blame to be uh, to be given, I mean, the French high command is just absolutely hopeless in the uh, in in the Battle of France. There's no clear political uh, um, kind of backing. You don't have what what really strikes me about 1940. If you look at 
the way it works between the the French, the, the British, the Belgium, uh, etc., and 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 the, the the kind of layer between the the military and the political is that this is not coalition fighting. This is not 1944. You know, in okay, we have a common goal: defeat the Germans. Now, you know, within days of the 10th of May, it's clear that actually it's the Germans that are defeating us, uh, and everybody's out for themselves. Uh, uh, and there's just the, the, the number of times that, uh, the, there's, um, there's, a um, a difference between the, the, the interpretation on the military level and the political level, uh, to, to go back to Dunkirk, when Gold leaves, the French, uh, Admiral Abrial is, is told that the remaining, I think it's, there's still three full divisions remaining in the, uh, in the perimeter, three British yeah. uh, divisions, and he's told that they're under his command. Okay. Uh, Alexander, who's still in, who's still in charge, uh, actually has, uh, it was told by the, by the British high command that no, his job is to, is to, uh, uh leave, get these guys back to UK, uh, by whatever means necessary. So, and that happens times and times again in the battle. So it's not, it, it doesn't have the structure, it doesn't have the trust uh, that, the, uh, that the armies of 1944 uh, will have when they came back to, to mainland Europe. I think that's a, re- that's a really, really well-made point. And it is one of the great ironies that British, Britain and France in 1940 are formal allies. Whereas in 1944, Britain and the United States are coalition partners rather than formal allies, even though they're called the allies, ironically. And yet, as you say, the levels of cooperation and coordination and coalition are are so much tighter, so much better. Which is all down to the credit of of the of the war leaders, but also men like Eisenhower and all the rest of it, it's sort of keeping the whole thing, you know, afloat. It's it's in and and there's no question at all that the lessons of 1940 have been very very keenly felt by the British. And one of the and even when they have the ABC One talks in March 1941, you know, one of the key things they all say is. We've got to work really closely together. They reconfirmed that in in August at the um, you know the Atlantic meeting, uh, when Churchill and Roosevelt meet properly for the first time, and and again at the Arcadia conference in December 1941, following America's entry into the war. Yes, they agree that it's still going to be the Germany first policy, but they also go, whatever happens, we've got to really work together here, you know. And and one of the key mantras that when Eisenhower gets sent over to Britain, and starts preparing first for what he thinks is going to be a cross-channel invasion, then Operation Torch in North Africa, and then Sicily, and then back to for the cross-channel invasion. That that mantra of don't slag off the Brits, don't slag off the Americans, you know, everywhere, we're all a team, we're all in it together, you know, we've, we've got to be pulling together, we've all got to be off the same peg, all this sort of stuff. It's just over and over and over again, and it really, really works um, in a way that's... that it never works in 1939, 1940. I suppose that's why the people who do slag off the Brits on the American side stick out like sore thumbs. Is the, yeah, that's the, right. That's the, right. The, the, and it's because they are frustrated. Versa. They are frustrated because there are there are um, cultural differences. Generally speaking, though, I think you just do find that the the the, the causes of antagonism are are character led, and because one feels very strongly about something, and you know you. They, I've said it before, but, you know, they have this gargantuan amounts of responsibility on their shoulders. So of course, tempers are going to fray. But what is amazing about, about the British-American relationship is not the discord, it's the levels of accord that are, 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 that are witnessed throughout, throughout that the period exact, of coalition. Yeah. The exact yeah, opposite just of one la- yeah. yeah, One last question. Um, yeah. 
What happens to the French high command in 1940 after this um, record-breaking, ignominious defeat? Without being uh, too uh, uh, provocative, the the good elements are either sacked or are in prisoner war camps in Germany or are in London. Uh, if you think of Giraud in, uh, Giraud in Germany, De Gaulle in London, etc., and the irony is that probably the guy most responsible for, for the defeat and the uh, ease of the breakout at, uh, at Sedan, uh, General Hunziker, uh, gets yes. promoted to chief of the, uh, chief of the French army under, under Pétain. Uh, he is, is, he is so really, bad. He's, he he's, is absolutely he's literally hopeless. the worst. He, yeah. he just, he doesn't have, if you look at it closely, I mean, he doesn't have a bad position. Uh, he's, um, you know, he he's got he's got some fortified positions behind uh, behind the Meuse. Uh, his units defending uh, Sudan are not uh, uh, they're B rate divisions, so they're older guys, but they they're willing they're willing to fight. He's the one that gives them the order uh, to to um, uh, to to retreat based on the false assumption that the Germans are going to swing south and then back east to encircle the Maginot Line and hasn't seen the breakout going towards uh, going towards the west. He's he's just hopeless. Uh, and he's, he's also one of the guys who who says um, when when the um, aerial reconnaissance comes in of this enormous yeah. nose to tail. Um, log jam in the Ardennes, and he goes, no. "That's not possible." And there's no <laughs> dismissed. Yeah, and, I mean, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, and, and Gamelin's useless, isn't he? I mean, he's absolutely yeah, no Gamelin. I mean, how can um, you have a, How can you have have a have a headquarters in the Chateau de Vincennes with no telephone? <laughs> Let alone the radio. I mean, that's just insane. Well, yeah. incredible. Well, yeah. what a story. Um, Pierre, thank you, thank you so much for for joining us and giving us because we, you know, the other side of the hill we do rarely enough. The other side of the channel is a different story. Yeah. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. No, it's been really good to see you, Pierre. Yeah, it's be, really, be very nice to meet you. Yeah. 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 No, it's been fun. Look um, after yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Well, that's it for today. Um, but we'll be back tomorrow for the next instalment of the Dunkirk story. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.